0: Danger slippery road ahead as Texans hit the holiday highways with cheaper gas at the pumps. Falling oil prices could still hit us where it hurts. The story today on The Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No
0: surprises. I'm David Brown. The oil and gas sector lose $1 trillion in value as prices plummet. What's happening and how it could affect everyday Texans. Also, thinking about 2020 already? Why Jonathan Tilub of the Austin American Statesman suggests? Don't bet against Beto's return. Plus, how the changing of the guard in the U.S. House of Representatives hits home for Texas farmers. All those stories and a whole lot more as The Standard gets started. Right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this November 21st, and we're so grateful you're spending a bit of your Texas time with us. I'm David Brown. A check of the Texas news ticker on this day before Thanksgiving, the El Paso Times leads today with a story about hometown congressman and former Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke. O'Rourke questions troops at border is the headline. The story explains that with just two months left in his term, the Texas congressman and two other Democrats on the Hill have sent a letter to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis asking about the rules, the timeline, and the cost of sending at least 5,200 active duty U.S. troops to the border. More on Mr. O'Rourke and his political future in just a couple of minutes. Meanwhile, the Laredo Morning Times reports troops left Laredo on Monday, leaving behind razor wire at the border and concerns among locals about how long that'll be there. A Border Patrol official tells the City Council that it's a temporary measure because of the so-called migrant caravan Promising troops will be back to take the dangerous wire down at some point, but not promising any set date. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram, among many Texas outlets, covering volunteers rallying to feed the homeless this Thanksgiving. But how much thought's being given to feeding those who grow and harvest the food, or those who rely on food stamps right now? Both issues, part of a massive farm bill set to expire, and like many of you this week with Congress out of the office for Thanksgiving, certain crop subsidies federal nutrition assistance programs, and more are in limbo. Liz Crampton is a Washington-based food and agriculture reporter for Politico. Liz, welcome to the Texas Standard.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I was just online a few minutes ago checking out what uh, folks were saying about the farm bill, and it seems like there is a great deal of anxiety in farm country over what is holding up, what's stalling this bill. People want to see it before the calendar turns. What's standing in the way?
2: So the Farm Bill is a pretty complicated piece of legislation, yeah. but the challenge is melding together two different versions of the bill, the House bill and the Senate bill. And there's some pretty stark differences between the two, um, which has led to like pretty heated negotiations among the agriculture leaders in Congress as they try to find some sort of common ground. What Are, are there two or three uh,
0: specific differences that you would point to that, that seem to be creating an impasse?
2: Well, the most glaring difference is um, the bill's approaches to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or known more commonly as food stamps. Mm-hmm. The House bill sort of takes on um, an overhaul of the program. You know, it would impose new work requirements on um, five to seven million food stamp recipients as well as establish a jobs training program at the state level, mm-hmm. which is a pretty controversial proposal. Um it's a conservative proposal. You know, House Republicans have touted it as a shot at achieving outgoing Speaker Paul Ryan's welfare reform. Mm-hmm. However, Democrats want nothing to do with it. And then you have that um, contrasted with the Senate bill, which doesn't, um, you know, pursue any of those reforms. It largely keeps SNAP status quo. It has some provisions intended to combat fraud, but it was passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Um, So the challenge is, um, how do you find a compromise? Yeah.
0: A key player here is a Texan uh, congressman, Mike Conaway. He's a Republican from Midland who chairs the House Ag Committee. What does he want in this bill before giving it the green light?
2: So he's a strong advocate for the House proposals on SNAP. You know, he wants to see that done. He believes in the policy. Mm -hmm. He also has some must-have provisions, you know, across the bill and the commodity title. He wants to make sure that farmers, you know, see consistent payments and support from USDA, especially in the tough economy that they're facing right now. You know, he's a strong champion of um, farm subsidies. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when it comes to conservation issues, he, he wants to see a streamlining of the programs in order to make it easier for producers to participate and conservation programs.
0: Lay this out for how this plays out on the family farm. I mean, what are the stakes for farmers and ranchers if there's not a bill passed during the lame duck?
2: Well, I mean, farmers are having very tough times right now. Um, You know, they have retaliatory tariffs, um, you know, due to our president's trade agenda. Prices are low. Farmers are struggling. This is a hard time for them. So you hear lawmakers say over and over again, we need to give our farmers certainty. You know, they need to know, They can count on um, those payments from USDA. Lenders need to know that, you know, the programs are going to stay consistent. And the farm bill um, expired, has to be authorized every five years. And the current farm bill expired on September 30th. So we're in sort of like this limbo period where in the short term things are okay. You know, farm programs are funded through the year. But if, you know, no solution is reached by the end of the year, Congress has to make a decision um, on, on how they're going to resolve the situation.
0: Bottom line, how likely is it we see a farm bill get passed before the new one expires? And could there be like a continuing resolution style thing that just holds over the old bill for a few
2: yeah, months? So lawmakers and sources on Capitol Hill are, you know, insisting that they're close, you know, we're close. However, if they don't strike a deal, what they're going to have to do is pass an extension of current law which is usually about a year long. Um, and it you know keeps everything consistent and the same. But that's when you get into sort of like a quagmire of politics where you have members trying to you know attach writers onto mm. that. And then there's also gonna be a separate fight on what exactly will be in that extension. Senate Agriculture Chairman Pat Roberts has refused to even talk extension because he doesn't <laughs> want to even have that option on the table because he wants to keep the pressure on to get this deal done.
0: Liz Crampton is a food and agriculture reporter for Politico. Liz, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Heading into a long holiday weekend, an interesting thought about the midterms just passed. You know, If Beto O'Rourke had beaten Ted Cruz in that nationally watched race for U.S. Senate, he'd have no choice but to hold off calls to run for president in 2020. He pledged he wouldn't do it if elected. But now that he's wrapping up his third term in Congress with no clear gig lined up after he leaves D.C., he's going to have a different sort of challenge, rebuffing demands from Democrats to make a White House bid in the next campaign cycle. So notes Jonathan Tylev reporting for the Austin American-Statesman. Jonathan, thanks for joining us again on The Standard.
3: Pleasure to be with you.
0: You think uh, Beto O'Rourke will be rebuffing these requests? Uh, Has he given any any indication he'll actually be running again? I don't think he has, has he?
3: Uh, No, no. But what uh, sort of has emanated from people around him is that he's not uh, inclined to run again for the Senate. Cornyn is up in 2020. So that suggests that if he is going to stay in politics in the immediate future, that running for president would be uh, more attractive to him Hmm. than running for the Senate, I think uh, at this point, the decision rests largely with his wife, I think, about whether he can, you know, hit the road for another couple of years after just having been on the road for two years.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, we should point out to the Cornyn that you mentioned, of course, as most of our listeners know, John Cornyn, he is the Republican uh, uh, senator who's up for re-election in 2020. What do you make of of Beto O'Rourke's concession speech, because I think a lot of people were trying to read between the lines, as it appears <laughs> you were as well.
3: Yeah, I think, um, well, he developed this kind of extraordinary bond with his support base, because he was more than a candidate. He was someone who Facebook lived his life for two years, and developed this um, this interrelationship with his campaign, which because it did so well while falling short, excited people, and I think uh, for both his supporters and for him, it's a little bit difficult to go cold turkey, so everything he, um, every message he's posted since has been um, invested with meaning, even if it's just about uh, taking a run in the snow in D.C. and happening by the Lincoln Memorial, and Lincoln being a member of the House who ran and lost for the Senate in two years, Mm. ran and was elected president, so it may be overreading, but I don't. I don't know. I think that um, part of what would tug him to um, run for president is to maintain this this thing he has, which if he doesn't run for something, could wither. You're talking about
0: this thing he has being that bond with with his with his yeah,
3: base. Yeah, I think he he has an ex, you know, and and I think, you know, whether <laughs> whether by intention or or incidentally everything he did to run for the Senate in Texas ended up uh, building a national base uh, because of the way the media works and his social media skills. And the fact that uh, he got so much national press, the yeah. The idea of this um, young um, Kennedy-esque figure from El Paso, Texas, uh, perhaps uh, threatening Ted Cruz, who's sort of a you know, for Democrats, a supervillain in Texas was just a great storyline.
0: But I mean, just less than a minute left. I, I I have to ask, though, and you raise this this issue. Uh, if if you're leaving Congress, where's your platform number one? And who else might have their hat in the ring come 2020 on the Democratic side?
3: Well, that's that's the thing. Is if he does not uh, run for the running for president would be his platform. If he doesn't, then uh, it's not clear what his platform is. It would be difficult. And it's going to be everybody from uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders um, to Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, and there's there's no shortage. It'll be about a, you know, a court one out of every three or four members of the Democratic members of the Senate. It'll be a few governors. It'll be people oftentimes with with greater credentials for running for president than Beto O'Rourke, but probably no one with a more natural talent for running for office.
0: Yeah, a lot of people comparing um, Better O'Rourke to uh, President Obama, including President Obama himself. Now, Jonathan Tylev is chief political writer for the Austin American-Statesman. Uh, we'll link to his article at TexasStandard.org. Jonathan, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Monitoring what Texans are talking about on this day before Thanksgiving, social media editor Wells
4: Dunbar. Hi, David. Gas price is a popular subject this Thanksgiving Eve, and that includes the chatter from the White House, where President Donald Trump tweets in part, oil prices getting lower. Great like a big tax cut for America and the world. Enjoy. Thank you to Saudi Arabia, but let's go lower. Mm. Well, that tweet is rankling some here in Texas, which knows a thing or two about oil as well. In South Texas, Michael Cantu says, thank you, Saudi Arabia. It's more like, thank you, Texas. Because of high production and extraction of shale oil in West Texas, the market is able to stabilize, and there is a surplus, which drops prices. Put the USA first. Well, many other people also noting about the his shout-out to Saudi Arabia. This coming the day after uh, his remarks, essentially absolving uh, the state there of any connection in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. So more news we're watching yep. a ruling from the Republican Texas Court of Criminal Appeals finding that prosecutors building the case against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton indicted over three years ago was improperly paid. It's another setback to the team trying to bring him to trial. And one we're watching, I'll be back with more reactions later in the show.
0: You know, it's uh, and we'll be talking more about that oil price issue yeah. that uh, the president was uh, tweeting about as well. So we'd love to hear from you, Texas. Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar will be back with more of your comments in 35.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Horn frogs strive to be a force for the greater good. Like Professor Liran Ma, who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on.
0: Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Let's see here. Potatoes, check. Breadcrumbs, check. Cranberry sauce, got it. What about that old Texas standby, the traditional all-time favorite key lime pie? What? Key lime pie? That's a Texas thing? Turns out a supposed map of America's favorite pies making the rounds of the Internet caught the attention of Senator Ted Cruz, who was quick to jump in with a retweet of his own. Hashtag fake news, said he. get back to this checklist, shall we? Ah, yes, the turkey. Turkey. Turns out Texas has more in common with turkey than just the letter T. Just in time for You Know What, Texas Public Radio's Brian Kirkpatrick has been exploring all things turkey in Texas.
5: We all know turkey can be dry if it's not cooked right, but the story doesn't have to be dry, so let's add a little music from the late king of western swing, Bob Wills. I use music from a 1940s singing star and a story about turkeys? He's from Turkey, Texas, north of Lubbock, of course. Another turkey town is Cuero, about 90 miles east of San Antonio. Its big turkey farms are gone now, but the town known as the Turkey Capital of the World still celebrates its past each October with Turkey Fest. It includes a race between two turkeys down a main drag. If you can imagine two turkeys racing, maybe it's more of a trot. The town's high school football team is called the Gobblers. The state's only commercial turkey processing plant is operated by Cargill in Waco, and processes 27,000 birds a day, according to its website. Its products include turkey slices for sandwiches and turkey legs for rodeos. James Grimm of the Texas Poultry Federation says turkey meat is very popular in today's age of high-protein, low-carb diets and it's affordable.
4: It's very economical, um, you know, cost savings is a big factor today and, and turkeys are very economical. As a matter of fact, uh, in some places you can buy a ham and get a turkey free, so you can't beat free.
5: Outside of commercially raised turkeys, state wildlife officials say Texas is home to three subspecies of the North American wild turkey and the biggest of those three is the Rio Grande turkey. More than half a million of them roam the western two-thirds of the state. The red flap above their beak is called a snood, while the red flap under their beak is called a waddle. State parks and wildlife expert Jason Harden says on top of their head is sort of the turkey version of a mood ring called a car uncle.
6: It can actually
4: switch from red to white depending on that bird's mood if he's angry or looking to impress a female.
5: Hopefully this information will help you talk turkey over the Thanksgiving table. For the Texas Standard, I'm Brian Kirkpatrick.
1: Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. If you're following the stock market, and not everyone does, of course, there's a reason for a lot of Texans to be paying attention right now. Not only has the market been moving down generally, pretty steeply since October, but one of the sectors leading that downward charge, energy companies. In fact, the energy sector worldwide lost about $1 trillion in value, so reports the Houston Chronicle. What does this mean? Well, it's not just that energy companies will have a tougher time borrowing money, but also hiring and retaining employees, driving the economies of cities from Houston to West Texas and beyond. For tens of thousands of Texans, we're talking about job security, retirement plans, confidence for buying homes, cars, and, of course, holiday gifts. James Osborne is an energy reporter for the Houston Chronicles, Washington, D.C. Bureau, and he joins us now. James, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on The Texas Standard. Good to be here. What's contributing to this $1 trillion loss of value in the oil and gas sector?
7: I mean, quite simply, I mean, oil prices are just falling fast, and uh, they have been for the last couple months. And, um, you know, production around the world has been, you know, it's been pretty high lately, I think. There's a lot of expectation that with the Iran sanctions... um, you know, going back into place, that oil would come off the market. And it seems it's, you know, some countries sort of producers were, you know, anticipating that increasing production, getting ready for it. But that hasn't really happened. The Trump administration has um, handed out a number of waivers to different countries so they can continue to import Iranian crude. So there's just a lot of oil on the market right now. You know,
0: I, I think most of us understand this supply and demand equation. When you have a lot of supply... Uh, and demand stays relatively stable, then prices tend to drop. But of course, if you're wanting to maintain your profits in the face of falling oil prices, what do you do? Well, a lot of folks just start pumping more oil, right? And you end up in this spiral.
7: Yeah, I mean, that's been the pattern again and again. Um, you've seen that, you know, around the world, and the no, United States is no different than that. Um, the oil companies in the United States, I mean, a lot of the fracking boom, which is really, you know, made the U.S. a leading world producer again is, you know, is up until recently was sort of tended to be done by smaller independent companies and not with that. They don't have the sort of balance sheets of an ExxonMobil or a Chevron. And when they get in these situations, yeah, they, they tend to try to get as much oil out of the ground as they can, um, as long as they can. But, um, that situation, you know, they've, they've sort of were on some shaky financial ground for a while, sort of spending far more money than they were taking in. Mm. They have been reined in a bit by Wall Street lately. Um, there was, you know, some concern basically that they were sort of overspending and, and could get themselves into sort of a bubble situation. But uh, Wall Street has sort of made clear to them um, that they, that's sort of not acceptable anymore and they have been reining it in.
0: Well, you know, we are now looking at uh, lows that we haven't seen in months for the price of oil, and I guess uh, uh, one of the major fears is that we're not just talking about some short-term fear among investors that we're seeing manifest on Wall Street, but in fact we may be looking at an end of this sort of boomlet that we've been experiencing since I guess what, 2017, 2016, depending on how you measure it?
7: Yeah, um, it could be. I mean, mean, you know, OPEC is scheduled to meet um, in a couple weeks in Vienna. They're they're already signaling there's going to be a production cut. The size of it, they're not sure. So, I mean, from that, you would sort of, in the short term, sort of imagine that oil prices will at least stabilize and maybe creep back up a bit. But longer term, I mean, if you sort of look at longer and longer years, there's just so much more competition in the energy sector than there used to be. Um, You know, renewable energy is coming on huge. Cars are getting more efficient. I mean, there's just sort of a lot of sort of long-term downward drags on the oil sector that a lot of people, you know, around the Texas oil industry are taking note of and and are certainly concerned about. I think it's just really a matter of um, when these things really start to materialize. But for right now, it's certainly a tough time for the industry. Down with the prices where they were, I mean, um, they've been lower. Um, They've certainly had tougher times recently, um, particularly after the, um, this, the drop in prices a couple of years ago. But yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough time for the industry. James
0: Osborne continues to follow it as energy reporter for the Houston Chronicles, Washington, D.C. Bureau. James, thanks so much. Thank you. Four years' ten of federal oversight of Austin Fire Department's hiring practices is coming to an end. Back in 2013, the U.S. Department of Justice found that AFD had been discriminating against African Americans and Hispanic firefighter candidates. Though the Justice Department officials said the discrimination was unintentional, they determined that hiring processes deprived minority candidates of equal footing. The following year, the city reached a settlement with the DOJ that included paying out $780,000 to unsuccessful applicants for back pay as well as setting aside positions for minority candidates. The DOJ had the option to extend the oversight period for an additional four years, but they said they did not find, quote, good cause to extend the settlement. Coming up on 29 Minutes past the hour.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
8: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he's not surprised by reports the Trump administration will soon withdraw U.S. troops deployed to the southern border. Paxton was asked on Fox News about soldiers being pulled back before a so-called caravan of migrants from Central America arrived. President Trump's stated reason for the deployment.
3: It doesn't surprise me because they were never brought there to detain or be a part of, of stopping people from cl- crossing illegal. That's Border Patrol.
8: Army Lieutenant General Jeffrey Buchanan told Politico earlier this week the end date for the deployment is December 15th, but the U.S. Army has since said there's no specific timeline for removing the troops. A Texas baseball great is hanging up his cleats. Adrian Beltre announced his retirement Tuesday after eight years of playing third base for the Texas Rangers. KERA's Rick Holter looks back at his all-star legacy.
9: In his 21 seasons, Adrian Beltre only played in one World Series. Boy, did he play. Time. That's Fox's Joe Buck calling a home run that Beltray hit from one knee in the 2011 World Series. The Texas Rangers lost that series in six games, and they've still never won one. Beltre started out a Los Angeles Dodger. He had stops in Seattle and Boston and found his home in Texas, where he spent eight seasons winning hearts and minds with his heart and his playful personality. And then there are the statistics. Four all-star games, five gold gloves, 477 home runs, and he's the only player from the Dominican Republic ever to top the 3,000 career hit mark. It's not the numbers that define this 39-year-old, though. It's the diving stops at third base, the goofing around with shortstop Elvis Andrews, the dancing to avoid an inside pitch, and there's a description that his old compadre Michael Young tweeted out, above all, a perfect teammate. From Dallas, Rick Holter for the Texas Standard.
8: Texas lawmakers say there are many ways to combat hunger, especially as people look to give back during the holidays. U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas and Austin Mayor Steve Adler volunteered to stay at HEB's Feast of Sharing in the state's capital city. They donned red aprons and passed out Thanksgiving meals as the upbeat music of a live band echoed throughout the building. Cornyn, a Republican, says there's a number of ways to address food insecurity in Texas, including federal legislation like the Farm Bill.
5: There's uh, retail outlets like like HEB, who have food that's met its uh, normal shelf life, or there's produce they can't sell in the market but still is edible and nourishing. So there's a role for everybody to play.
8: Texas has one of the highest rates of food insecurity in the country at about 14 percent of the population, according to federal data. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard.
0: Thirty-three minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. One of the toughest things about being a high school teacher is seeing students drop out or fail to graduate. But every now and then, students and their teachers get a second chance. That's the focus of what you're about to hear. It's part of a collaboration between public radio stations in Texas and the Columbia Journalism School. It's a project called What My Students Taught Me. KERA's Stella Chavez reports.
10: Rebecca Dodd was in her early 50s when she decided to go into teaching. She had worked in sales and marketing in the insurance industry, but she liked solving math problems and show others how. She was in her second year at Grand Prairie High School when she met Cheyenne Musgrave. She was a student that just captured my heart right
11: off. She reminded me so much of one of my own children. She was a very quirky, spunky kid, and she just smiled. She just brightened your day when she
10: walked in. Cheyenne felt a connection too. Dodd's teaching helped her thrive. I felt like she understood me and she wasn't like all the other teachers because they did judge me a lot. As she got to know Cheyenne, Dodd found out she was having problems at school, personality conflicts with teachers, the material was too hard, or she'd skip class. I was careless and just Young-minded. Cheyenne was also bored and often got into trouble. Some things were small, like not wearing her student ID. Others? One time I cussed at a teacher, and the other time I told the principal I was gonna um, hit a girl in the hallway, and he suspended me from school. dot says she knew Cheyenne just needed someone to talk to, someone to motivate her. And Dodd was there for Cheyenne when personal tragedy struck. The first day back of school
11: after Christmas break, and uh, oh, she was just in a really bad situation. And I asked her what was wrong, and she said, "It's okay. I I can't talk about it." Whoa.
10: What had happened is her boyfriend had been killed. Cheyenne cried. So did Dodd. Later, a school administrator chided her, telling Dodd she shouldn't show strong emotions or cry with her students, that she had to be the adult. Even though Dodd was a newer teacher, she disagreed. Students, she thought, need to feel that empathy. And sometimes that means walking through the pain with a student. Always felt like from that moment on because
11: she had confided in me and... We just, we grew from there. It wasn't that we had that chatty session every day. It was just, it was kind of a bonding from that. But
10: then on Cheyenne's 18th birthday, she didn't show up. Dodd learned Cheyenne had withdrawn from school. I think I made several phone calls, probably at
11: least 10 to 15 phone calls over a period of time trying to talk to Cheyenne and her mom going, she just won't, she still feels really bad. And so you
10: just, at some point I just had to, let let that go. Nearly a decade went by, Cheyenne got married and had four kids, but she still remembered her teacher fondly. Some people would leave, you know, like footprints in your life and she was like one of them. She was cool. She was real cool. Dodd got a job at Crosswinds Accelerated High School. It's a campus in Grand Prairie for non-traditional students seeking a high school diploma. One day last spring, Dodd opened Facebook and noticed a message. It was from Cheyenne. It was just like, oh my gosh, my heart
11: just was beating so fast because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe
10: she found me. I wrote her and I told her, you know, I hope you remember me. And she was like, of course I remember you. So we just went from there. Cheyenne told her she wanted to finish high school, so Dodd convinced her to enroll in the school where she works. Today, Cheyenne is taking biology and history classes at night. It's very different from high school, she says. The schedule and pace are better for her. And it's great having Dodd as a teacher again, though Dodd says Cheyenne's taught her as much as she's taught Cheyenne. One lesson, that it's okay to cry with your students. The other?
11: that. All is not lost when a student drops out for whatever reason and that they can come back and be successful. And they they need that second chance and not think, oh, well, I'm too old. There's nothing I can
10: do. Dodd says she's glad she got a second chance, too. In Dallas, I'm Stella Chavez.
0: Our story was produced in collaboration with the Teacher Project at the Columbia School of Journalism. We are coming up on 39 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time, and just ahead, we're going to be politifact checking a claim about migrants and diseases at the border. You don't want to stick around
1: for that. Texas Standard continues. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org.
12: Hey, this is Jason Reitman. I am the co-writer and director of The Frontrunner.
1: The youngest candidate. Hart spoke at four. The
12: campaign trail. The clear Frontrunner. This was a story that I came to my life a few years ago when I heard a Radiolab episode. And I really was unfamiliar with the Gary Hart story at the time. Uh, And I could not believe that there was this moment in our recent history when the presumed next president of the United States wound up in an alleyway in the middle of the night with these journalists and no one knew what to do because no one had ever been in their shoes before. Uh, And really, he went from being the next president to leaving politics forever in less than a week.
3: There's going to be a story tomorrow
12: about me. Gary Hart uh, was a two-time senator from Colorado um, who was charismatic and was Kennedy-esque and was handsome and was friends with people in Hollywood, uh, but at the same time was this kind of rugged Midwesterner who had grown up in Kansas and lived in Colorado uh, and went into the race 10 points ahead of Bush and 25 points ahead of every Democrat. And the Miami Herald got a tip. and. For the first time, journalists at a major American paper decided to follow up on a tip about philandering. I
3: want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her? You can't be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that.
13: I am serious, sir.
12: What I found was when I would start telling people the Hart story, everyone's perspective was different on it, and it really touched on different things. There was a lot of different ways into the story. So my co-writers Jay Carson and Matt By and I decided to make a movie from the perspective of the journalists at the Miami Herald, the Washington Post, the campaign people, Donna Rice, Hart's family. It's really a movie told from 20 different perspectives, and that's how we filmed it. You know, the 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 screen is electric and lively, and you as an audience member are being asked the question. What story do you want to follow? What's important to you right now? Which hopefully echoes the philosophical question of the movie, which is, what is important?
1: He is a man with power, and that takes certain responsibility.
5: We need to say something. It's nobody's business.
1: None of it is.
12: There is gender politics. There's the conversation about public versus private. There is, you know, the changing relationship between candidates and journalists, not to mention the moment where tabloid journalism drove into the lane of political journalism and never really left.
9: Some other paper used gossip as front page news. I mean, that doesn't mean we have to. It does. It does now.
12: Hey, this is Jason Reitman. I'm the co-writer and director of The Front Runner, and you are listening to The Texas Standard.
1: Port for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design project management solutions to help cross-functional teams monitor projects in real time. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com.
0: 43 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Most school districts across the state are closed on this Wednesday in preparation for Thanksgiving. Some students have been off for the whole week. That means we may have more parents listening this morning with their kids in tow. Howdy there, kids. This next story may be one that parents of school kids may be especially interested in. It's about the state's largest school district, Houston ISD, and why families say its effort to consolidate bus stops this year has led to delays and confusion and perhaps worse. Indeed, one mother says a very late bus actually led to her daughter ending up in the hospital. Houston Public Media's Laura Isensee has that story.
14: Here is how it sounded when she made an urgent call to the district's bus hotline.
13: Can not you tell where she's at? No, ma'am, I don't have, have that.
14: Alice Quiroz didn't know where her 14-year-old daughter, Alyssa, was. Quiroz thought maybe the district knew where she was, since they gave students new bus cards to track their location. But the hotline operator told her that was no help.
13: That's for the parents, not for... So you have no control of seeing it on your side?
2: No, ma'am. Not on. Not on. On that.
14: Kinos was getting more frustrated and worried by the minute. This wasn't a matter of inconvenience. Alyssa has a serious heart condition called POTS. Here's how she explains it: My heart's always uh, beating super fast, like as if you're drinking coffee every minute, <laughs> and whenever like a panic attack is coming on or I'm not feeling good like I can feel my heart racing. She needs medication every day at 6 p.m. to keep it under control. Stress and heat make it worse and her late bus was putting these risk factors together in a dangerous way. Alyssa tried to text her mom and she said are you at the hub yet and I said I don't know and she said are you okay and I said no my heart's racing And then she said, take deep breaths. And I said, I need my meds. Soon after that, Alyssa couldn't text anymore because she couldn't move her arms or legs. By the time her bus arrived at the stop just east of downtown, it was almost three hours late. And Kudos found her daughter
13: unconscious. And they're calling the paramedics. Paramedics are arriving. I have actual video Uh, when she was laying there in the bus. It's 7.10. I'm sorry. She should have been here at home by 4.30. She tells me why she recorded such an awful moment. I've learned to document everything, because if it's not documented, it's just hearsay and nothing is ever done. Medics moved Alyssa in a stretcher straight from the school bus
14: to an ambulance. She didn't get home from the hospital until about midnight. The Houston School District says they are taking new steps to fix this latest problem with transportation. They'll review routes before they combine any more. They plan to get students medical information to prioritize drop-offs if they're late. And the bus hotline will get a serious review.
13: Alice Kuro says she got an apology from the superintendent, but... Reaching out to me is not fixing the problem. I need the problem fixed not only for my child, but for all the other children. Kudos wants to know how Houston families,
14: district administrators, and others can come together to figure out how to get kids to and from school safely and on time, because her daughter Alyssa's still scared. This was the second time she had a medical issue getting home. I don't know if I want to ride the bus at this point because I don't want to not feel safe. Just going home and going to school. As adults work on a solution, Alyssa tells me she's found her own way to cope. She turns up her favorite music artist, Cardi B, and sings along. No, I like I I like diamonds. I like, stunning, I like, I like, millions, I like my pin? Covering education, I'm Laura Eisensee.
0: She's got a career in music right there. Dallas director Nicole Green. Got the nod from Hamilton producers to become the first black woman to direct the Broadway hit, but when they asked her to clear her schedule, well, they received what must have been an unexpected reply. A polite no can do. Not yet, at least. Green said she could not walk away from the Dallas Theater Center's annual tradition of producing a Christmas carol, where this December her vision as casting director will take shape on the stage. Well, After finishing this chapter of her career in Dallas, Green does plan to travel the country to recreate the Hamilton experience that audiences get to enjoy in the Big Apple. All after all. (laughs) Coming up on 49 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. We'd love to hear what your Thanksgiving plans are. You can tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook because you know Wells Dunbar, our social media editor, is going to be joining us in just a couple of minutes. So stick around as The Standard continues.
1: Support for a Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org.
0: You're listening to The Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. A group showed a photograph of a man covered with skin bumps and said gruesome diseases are slipping across the U.S.-Mexico border. Hmm. Did this social media post hold up? Back to dissect the facts, Gardner Selby, on behalf of the fact-checking PolitiFact Texas project-based at the Austin American Statesman. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Now, of course, uh, we're on the radio, and so we're going to have to do something that's a little difficult. Uh, Let's talk about this photograph that touched off the fact check. How would you describe it?
6: I know you've peeked at it. It's a color photo of a man with his shirt off. He's got one arm raised, and Mm -hmm. you can see several dozen raised red spots on his torso. Well
0: done. I think that's pretty vivid. Uh, So I suppose there's some kind of explanatory message in this post.
6: Yes, the group that posted it Montgomery County Citizens Against Illegal Immigration starts its post this way. Is this really the future we want for our children? By future, they mean what? That's There's all is more it to says? the post. There is more. All right. The group's post, dated November 2, lists various diseases, including tuberculosis, the Zika virus, hepatitis, measles, mumps, chickenpox, even one. polio, Good and Lord. that's not the full list. Now, the post closes by thanking Democrats for the risks to our kids. Wow. Wow. Uh, okay, so to be
0: clear, this wasn't a post by the Facebook company or anything like that. This, you know, it wasn't a sponsored post. This was on the Facebook platform, however.
6: Yeah, and it's important to point that out because Facebook flagged that post as possibly inaccurate. It does so as part of its partnership with fact-checking outlets, including PolitiFact.
0: Okay, so uh, speaking of PolitiFact, uh, did this photo and the accompanying message check out? PolitiFact reporter Kyra
6: Haas found that the photo was not new. Not new? How how so? Well, she did a reverse image web search, and it showed that the photo originally was shared with the Houston Chronicle four years ago Mm -hmm. by Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar. You know Cuellar. He's a Laredo Democrat. He said at the time that the photo reflected cramped and unsanitary conditions in a Customs and Border Protection facility in South Texas, Obviously, that's on our side of the border. Right. The Chronicle headlined that story, Photos show logjam of immigrants at government facility.
0: Okay, so this was a, uh, a photograph that was published by the Houston Chronicle. Certainly right. shared with them, yes. Okay, certainly shared with them by Congressman uh, Henry Cuellar. All right, so even if this photo in the Facebook post is outdated, uh, it does appear that this individual had a, some kind of condition that needed attention. Uh What about this notion, though, this underlying assertion that he brought it across the border?
6: Well, whether he brought it across the border or not, that was unclear. But he had scabies. That's a treatable skin condition. It can spread rapidly under crowded conditions. Uh, In this instance, the outbreak was largely limited to migrants that were living in close quarters over here. Mm. But a few Border Patrol agents appeared to get it, too. Now, you asked the second question or the underlying question is an important one. What about the the idea that people bring the diseases across the border? Yes, exactly. Diseases do cross the border, no doubt. But the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which studies all this sort of thing, Mm -hmm. attributes much of the spread of disease in the region, in the border region, not to illegal immigration but to the legal movement of people, both directions across the Rio Grande. Okay, you're going to have to unpack that just a bit more here. Here's what the CDC says. Mm -hmm. Studies have demonstrated the importance of cross-border movement in the transmission of diseases that include HIV, pertussis, rubella, and rabies, to name some of the more well-known diseases. The centers also say that the studies... Demonstrate that this concern extends to foodborne diseases, such as infections related to raw cheese and produce. Okay, well,
0: I I understand that. Okay, all right. Well,
6: let me get to something else. Increased vaccinations, the agency says, have produced dramatic declines in the incidence of infectious diseases, such as measles and hepatitis A.
0: Okay, well, so uh, that doesn't sound horribly conclusive to me. But uh, I'm wondering, once you uh, put all these facts together, how does the photo claim come out on the PolitiFact Truth-O-Meter?
6: I'll sum it up here. An old photo of crowding in a U.S. facility does not demonstrate that immigrants coming across illegally are bringing diseases. The finding by editor's PolitiFact, false. False is the ruling
0: from PolitiFact Texas regarding a claim accompanied by a photograph that immigrants are bringing diseases like mumps, measles, and polio across the border into Texas. Gardner Selby represents Politifact Texas. Gardner, thanks so much and a happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Oh, Wells. Yes, David. I have noticed something. Yeah, I've noticed in these Politifact segments now that they're being gussied up with these wonderful sound
4: effects. I am thankful right? for those sound effects. You 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 chuckle every single time.
0: <laughs> you start laughing. yeah yeah,
4: and Wells is over here. Easily like. amused. Yes, guilty well. as charged. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. I like the way that's done. That's, yeah, you know, yeah. I dig it. It's fine So well, what are
0: Texans talking about?
4: Well, uh, obviously thanksgiving is almost here Uh, by the way
0: nice sweater i am i am that's a gorgeous sweater
4: this is my uh you know i I wouldn't even call it an an ugly christmas sweater i think it's a a gorgeous sweater
0: green with some elk on there and a christmas tree or a tree of some sort got to
4: give a shout out to that savers thrift store in el paso there you go christmas sweater capital of texas last time i saw (laughs) a man they had no shortage in there but on a more serious note (laughs) thanksgiving is almost here so we're hearing from our friends and listeners about their holiday plans and what they're thankful for i've got Mm -hmm. to say as the texas standard social media editor i'm thankful for each and every one of these people plus all of our friends and listeners out there because i could not do what i do without them so here's what some of our pals are saying on our facebook page Mm facebook.com slash texas standard robert bobby flood says he's simply thankful for his family and the time that we have to celebrate and count all of our blessings together janice hitchcock says this holiday will hold something of a new tradition For her, she says she's looking forward to having Thanksgiving at my daughter's house Hmm. instead of my house for the first time. (laughs) Sweet. That's nice. James Art Axum has a comment that undoubtedly some folks can relate to. I'm thankful for all of my extended family, but also thankful we don't all live together. He's keeping it real. (laughs) Keeping it real right there. (laughs) Jonna says she's thankful for tamales. I think that's something we can all relate to as well. Amen to that, Jonna. And Jeff Martinez says he's not looking forward to the three-hour drive to San Antonio, but other than that, happy. Thanksgiving and on a more serious note David obviously current events have a way of driving home what's truly important to people, and that's being reflected in some of the stuff that we uh, are seeing out there as well. Dan mm-hmm. Hummel says he's ready to get out to the family farm in Brady. I think that's like Central Texas, mm-hmm. as central as it gets, mm-hmm. uh, actually. He says, I'm getting looking forward to getting out to the family farm there for some smoked turkey and plenty of shenanigans. I'm so thankful for everyone and everything we've been blessed with and are thinking of those in California who have lost so much thanks Texas Standard for your informed well produced programming lovely that's very that's nice, very nice. You thank, you. As well. thank you for listening and Karen says he is thank, uh, she is thankful that her husband is at home for Thanksgiving he was just discharged from the hospital earlier this week mm. God is good so amen. obviously amen to you uh, as well there Karen and uh, again it's a great story can't do the stuff we do without the the dedicated listeners uh, both to the show and also online on Facebook and on Twitter it's really probably the coolest part of my job, seeing the sort of group of people that we've cultivated uh, as sort of regular listeners to the show, people that interact with the show, uh, and uh, share their thoughts about the show with us. So again, my, uh, you know, I can't do it without them. So thanks to all of them. You know,
0: I I have to say, I think of uh, y'all as extended family, and that's that's the truth. And so uh, we like to tell secrets among family, and I'll just share (laughs) something with you right here. I'm so grateful for everybody behind the scenes here at the Texas Standard, and they make the show what it is. Absolutely. So please, if you get a moment, uh, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook and let them know how much you appreciate the work that they do. We're out of time for today's broadcast. We hope you'll join us for a very special edition of The Standard on Thanksgiving. Till then, I'm David Brown, wishing you a wonderful turkey day.
1: Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.